Welcome to the first podcast in this series focusing on topical issues in the telecommunications industry. I'm Dipti Gopind, a manager in PwC South Africa's Accounting Consultancy Services Division, and I will be your host. Our aim is to keep you up to date with key accounting and business issues within the telecommunications industry. In this episode, we will be covering the impact of IFRS 16 on long-term capacity arrangements. Whether it may be the leasing of cellular towers, which we often see on our daily commute, or if you happen to spot your service provider's logo on the car next to you in traffic, it is evident that telecommunications companies enter into a wide range of lease arrangements, both as lessors and lessees. The new standard is definitely causing ripples in the telco industry. IFRS 16 sees changes relating to lessee accounting, while lessor accounting remains largely unchanged. In the studio today, I'm joined by Renita Dwarika, a technical accounting partner specializing in the telecoms industry. Welcome to our first telecoms podcast, Renita. Thank you, Dipti, and I'm very delighted to be part of this first episode of the podcast series. Thank you for joining us today. For the communication space in particular, there are quite a few different types of arrangements, a common one being long-term capacity arrangements. So let's just dive straight into the detail. Could you elaborate what a long-term capacity arrangement is? Yes, certainly. So a long-term capacity arrangement is essentially a contract which is longer term in nature. Uh, In practice, I've seen these contracts span between 20 to 30 years. And basically what it does is it gives one party, being the customer, the right to use capacity on another party being the supplier's telecommunication network. These contracts can be structured in many different ways. However, some of the common sort of capacity arrangements that I've seen typically involve your wavelength, fiber, and sometimes they're even structured as consortium type arrangements. So fiber seems to be the latest trend, and I understand that the accounting is different depending whether the arrangement includes dark fiber or lit fiber. Could you briefly touch on the difference between dark and lit fiber? So sometimes uh, dark fiber is also referred to as unlit fiber, and basically what it is is it's a fiber optic cable that has been laid under the ground, which is not connected to any sort of telecommunication equipment. So it is available for use. Lit fiber is then almost the opposite of dark fiber. So lit fiber is the same thing. It's a fiber optic cable that has been laid under the ground. However, it's already been lit by, for example, an operator. So it is connected to a port on a piece of a telecommunication equipment. It's interesting that you say that. As in the current technological environment, we see that leases of dark fiber are becoming increasingly common. So that background is quite helpful. So let's kick off um, with talking about these fiber arrangements that provide an operator with exclusive use of a fiber or uh, multiple fibers within a supplies fiber cable. In my understanding, in these arrangements, the customer may have an unforfeitable right of use for, say, 20 years and is responsible for lighting the fiber. Am I correct in saying that the starting point would be to consider whether the arrangement contains a lease? Yeah, so your starting point would be to identify if there there is a lease. So one of the first questions you'd have to ask yourself is, is there an identified asset? 
And some of the things that you'd want to think about here in making this assessment is having a look at the contract and determining how specific the contract is about the fiber. So does it specify the exact fiber strands that the customer will use? It, it may even go as specific as saying fi this fiber strand starting at point X and ending at point Y. If it is that specific, then you are basically one step closer to saying that you have an identified asset. And what if the contract is not that specific? So if the contract is not that specific, then it's likely that there is no identified asset unless you can demonstrate that the customer is able to use substantially all of the capacity of the entire fiber cable. So let's put this in an example. Um, if you, for example, have a 20% capacity of a fiber cable, uh, that is likely not an identified asset as it does not give the right to substantially all of the identified cable. If we move back now to where the contract is quite specific, then before we conclude that we have an identified asset, another thing that we will have to assess is does the supplier have any substantive substitution rights? So before you continue there, Renita, I have a question. Would it be correct to say that the right to substitute an asset in the event of repairs and maintenance is not deemed to be substantive? Yes, that would be right. Uh, um, and that is something that is specifically mentioned in the standard. Uh. So what we will have to do is you'll have to look at the contract in detail, analyze all of the terms and the clauses in the contract that give rise to a substitution right. Uh. But once you identify the substitution rights, you can't just stop there. Um, you need to assess whether those substitution rights are substantive. And here we look to the standard which has guidance and it says that for a right to be substantive, the supplier must be able to substitute the asset with an alternative asset. So in our fiber example, uh, the supplier must be able to move the customer from, from one fiber strand onto another fiber strand that is available. And then secondly, the supplier must benefit from doing that. Okay. So are there any other considerations to bear in mind in identifying a lease arrangement? So I think I did mention earlier on, but we also need to ensure that the customer can obtain substantially all of the economic benefits from the use of the fiber. So in line with that, we'll have to think about whether there are any restrictions on the use of the fiber or potentially then the resale of the capacity. The last thing that I would like to mention is we also need to think about uh, uh, the customer's ability to direct the use of the asset. Uh, and that's quite a critical question. So that would typically involve decision-making around how and for what purpose the asset is used. For a fiber example, uh, a crucial question is who is responsible for lighting that fiber? So on that note of decisions, our listeners can find a useful decision tree included in Appendix B of IFRS 16 to determine whether a contract contains a lease. So we've touched on dark fiber arrangements. Could you explain how this arrangement would differ from a lit fiber arrangement? Sure. So in a lit fiber arrangement, typically a customer would be entitled to, for example, only four fiber strands out of, let's say, a cable which has a total of 12 fiber strands. And those four fiber strands are, in most cases, not specific. In that case, the contract will not contain an identified asset, assuming also that the four fiber strands do not represent substantially all of the capacity of that 12-strand cable. 
And then we know if there's no identified asset, then there is no lease arrangement. So in that instance, if there is no lease arrangement, what would be the accounting for this type of arrangement? So we see these arrangements being accounted for as service arrangements, where the supplier is providing capacity rather than the use of an identified asset. So that's been quite insightful. In the time that I've had the opportunity to engage with telecom clients, I've noticed that it's not uncommon for operators to contract with other third parties in consortium type arrangements to construct, um, let's say, infrastructure um, or systems in which these parties share the capital and operating costs, as well as share the capacity of the infrastructure and systems. These types of arrangements, therefore, can prove to be quite beneficial for telcos. What are your thoughts on this? Definitely. Uh, consortium arrangements are, uh, do have a lot of benefits. Uh, and some of the benefits that come to mind is uh, the, the reduction in the internal burden of asset management. Uh, and because you've, you've reduced this burden, management can focus on other areas of development. And then also something you mentioned is the shared cost structure, which helps in then reducing costs. So that doesn't sound like your typical lease arrangement. Therefore, what impact is the new standard likely to have on these types of arrangements? So we'll still need to consider if the arrangement contains a lease. Um, So let's turn this around. I'm going to ask the questions now, so we'll test your knowledge. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) Okay, so let's take a typical consortium arrangement. We have two parties who come together uh, to, let's say, build a subsea cable system. So they share equally in the cost of building that system. They then hold joint legal title over the assets and decision making around the development and then the operation of the system requires unanimous consent. Uh, Once the system is up and running, they share equally in the capacity. And let's assume further that there's no sort of restrictions on how they use the capacity. So just based on that and everything that we've discussed now about IFRA 16, would you say the arrangement contains a lease? So given that fact pattern and the points that we've touched on thus far, I would not think so, as each party shares in the plan capacity equally. Therefore, this doesn't represent substantially all of the capacity of the asset. Hopefully, I'm on the right track there. Great. So clearly, you (laughs) have been listening. So well done. Um, So here, what we would say is that because the parties require unanimous consent um, regarding the development and the operation of the cable system, the arrangement is likely to give both those parties joint control over the collection of the assets that make up the subsea cable. As a result, we would expect that this type of arrangement is a joint arrangement that would be scoped into IFRS 11 rather than our leasing standard being IFRS 16. So based on that example and the points that we've touched on thus far, it is clear that all factors need to be considered as identifying a lease arrangement is not as straightforward as it may appear to be. On that note, Renitha, do you have any other topics or considerations that you would like to share with our audience on long-term capacity arrangements? Yes, there's a lot that I would like to speak about, but time, time is limited. So I'll just briefly touch on another type of arrangement, uh, which is quite common, being the lease of wavelengths or spectrum. So a wavelength is basically a beam of light that doesn't have any physical attribute. And because it lacks this physical attribute, it's not tangible in nature. And when we look at these arrangements, we therefore um, think about intangible assets. 
uh, and sometimes even the lease, uh, a lease arrangement under IFRS 16. In which case, from my knowledge of the standard, the lessee has a policy choice as to whether to apply IFRS 16 to leases of intangible assets. Yes, so the scope of IFRS 16 does allow an entity a policy choice for the lease of intangible assets, and it does have a few specific cases that, that does not, is not included in that scope exemption. If an entity chooses not to apply IFRS 16, then it must determine whether the arrangement includes you know, either the acquisition of an intangible asset or it constitutes solely a service, uh, service contractor. And in practice today, what we typically see is that these arrangements are treated as service contracts. Thank you for joining us, Renika. Really appreciate your insights. It has been an interesting discussion on long-term capacity arrangements. Please join us for our next podcast, where we will discuss the determination of the unit of account under IFRS 16. Yes, that has been a very topical issue, so I really look forward to that one.